Welcome to season three of Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jagade. And I'm Anna Ile, and we are artists and friends. This stay-at-home season, we give advice to both individuals and art institutions. We're recording from a basement bedroom in Portland, Oregon, in the U.S. And here by a window in a studio apartment in Stavanger, West Coast, Norway. You'll hear us talking with art students. From Kunstskolen i Stavanger, artist friends in Oslo, and staff at Nationalmuseet in Oslo. Mostly recording from all of our phones. And now we'll hear from an art student. Um, my name is Ya Ying Wong, and I study at Kunstskolen i Stavanger. I've also studied at the same school more than 10 years ago. Should we just jump in? Yeah. So somebody submitted a question that says, I guess now a big percentage of artists are experiencing exhibitions online through photo and video. How can we engage people in a more and more technology-driven art world? I think in present day, technology is very um, important in art. And it's important to me personally too, because I, I'm very, like, I think a lot about sustainability now when I make art. I don't want to create a piece just to create it. I don't want to make something, I don't want to create more trash in a way. Not saying that art is trash, but I don't want to put another product into our environment that doesn't need to be there. So if I can reuse material or um, present my art digitally, that's what I will choose and I also work a lot with photography now whether it be digital or analog I can get the digital version and I was actually talking to my principal Jon Eivind yesterday and he asked me how I plan on presenting my work um, during our Avgangsutstilling which is our end of uh, final exam exhibition or whatever I told him what I told you guys now, and he said, well, you can actually um, show your art using project projectors or TV screens. And I actually thought that was a really good idea. I think what's really interesting about this question is the, the two parts of it seem to be um, like it's for, like it's saying, you know, a lot of art is experienced online. Um, how can we engage people in a more and more technology driven world? And I think that it, it because we see a lot of art online, we are already engaging people in a more and more technology-driven world. Like the question kind of is answering itself. I think also now when I see like a lot of museums like posting documentation of work online, and then I think it's really cool to hear you talking about like your practice and your actual works for a digital space, you know? Like it's not like I'm making something, uh, as you would put it. If you would make something uh, that could that could have a uh, functionist trash in the real world or, you know, like stuff mm-hmm. that means that you're like making something directly for the digital realm. So it becomes like, mm-hmm. um, uh, instead of a documentation of the work, it's like, it's the work. Exactly. Yeah. So instead of taking a photo of the art and posting it online, you can just create the art in the resolution that that's already suitable for a screen. So kind of like the screen, the 1920 by 1080 is my framework and I edit and put together my work in that 
frame. Yeah, and it's interesting that you're, I mean, when you do that, you're already thinking about the end product and, and who's going to see it. Like, you know, you're thinking about audience ahead of time and choosing to make the work fit the parameters of where it's going to be shown, which is the digital realm. Yeah, but is it, um, I, I don't know if you mentioned uh, uh, audience, because I think it's like different to to uh, to think of audience in terms of uh, like who's going to see it. But the fact that as long as it's going to be shown, it makes sense to put it on a screen. You know, like personally, like me thinking of like who's actually going to experience my work is like it comes very late usually. But still, uh, I, I still think about like uh, which format it will take. My audience currently is the jury for my art um, academy, I guess. So I thought, okay, well, I'm working with photography. It's already digital. Why not just um, edit the photos and put together the collages that I which is the medium I like to work with right now, in the 1920 by 1080 format. That way, when they open the file, it's already the maximum resolution for their screens. So mm -hmm. that's how I think about audience right now, because that's the most central for me at my mm -hmm. stage of my mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe you're thinking of the same question as well, Adelaide, because there is... Another one... Um... About sustainability? Yes. Let's see. Okay, I found it. So this question is, as an educator, should I ban materials that we know to be very detrimental to the environment from the course that I lead? Context. An example would be resin, synthetic dyes, or perspect. Perspect is plexiglass in other places. I should add that 91% of plastic waste isn't currently recycled. We know that the use of such materials is degrading our earth, waterways, human health, and eliminating habitats and life as we know it. I would add that almost every single student I teach or have ever taught uses plastic in some way in the creation of their work. Please help. I'm specifically interested in the responsibilities of the institution versus individual slash student freedom. That's a great question. It's actually quite central for me and my work. I have a goal right now. Um, to like this semester from now until my end of exam to not purchase or use any new materials. I want to be able to create art that's like, I want to be able to create art from existing materials, whether I find it at um, a secondhand store on the streets or just use natural materials such as, you know, plants or sticks, like just things you would find in nature. Mm. If I need something and I can't get it, then I'd, I'd rather just live without it because I don't I don't want to create another object into the world that's not biodegradable or that's going to stay there forever and it's just going to be stowed away. When it's like a teacher asking this question, do you think like uh, in an educational institution or institution, sh should they sort of put that uh, as like a... that? you won't be allowed to use any like a specific kinds of material within a, within a course, for example? I wouldn't ad advise anyone to use the word not allowed because that's such a harsh term, especially in the art world. I don't believe in hard limits, like I can't do that or you shouldn't do that. I would rather go for a softer, um, a softer focus, I guess, and maybe urge the students into using more sustainable materials, like introducing them to other options that aren't purchasing uh, from 
a corporate store, maybe first try to see if you can find your sources or materials from other places like a secondhand store. I love going in there because you know that these objects have already had a really long life and had a really like a lot of history when you touch the fabric and see the stains you can almost imagine what that material has been through and i find that really inspiring because that's how ideas come forth you know and yeah i wouldn't so i wouldn't say like don't tell your students not to just help them find another way or to mm -hmm. see like a different perspective i guess yeah sometimes it just might be a matter of uh not even those things not coming to mind. So it could even be as simple as a list of, uh, here's a, you know, this is a sculpture class, for example, here's a list of suggested materials. And you could just have like all kinds of things that people haven't been using. Maybe it'll mm. trigger, like, what's that? Or, you know, what is a uh, jute? Let me go see what that is. And then a lot of natural materials are actually cheap as well. You know, plastic is used a lot because it's cheap. Um, but there are natural materials that are Cheap. And often secondhand like, things are cheaper than new things anyway. And then you're you're stepping in and stopping those materials from potentially going to countries where they are going to become uh, like waste on the shores. Like for example, I think I've talked about this in another episode, but um, I found out that a lot of the secondhand clothes that are sent from the West to Ghana, um, it's like bales and bales every day and it's too much for the landfills um and they end up you know there's like overflow and the clothing ends up in the ocean um so if we can like step in and stop that process of sending things over that aren't you know that may be better off as an art supply than clothing um mm. you know and there's so many so many uh layers i was thinking back to you talking about um you know making digital work you were talking about it in terms of sustainability but also it's it's uh, more accessible for people who can't, um, you know, like have limited mobility or, you know, they, it's people who need to see art but don't have the option to maybe go to all these museums to see them in person or to mm -hmm. travel to see like a Biennale or something. Through this time period we're in now, we can really see how far technology can take us. I'm really curious to see like how uh, different places or different practices will develop. I, I'd like to ask you, well, if you wanted to continue on that thought, that then, because I'm going to change directions. <laughs> no, I would say that, yeah, it would be a really good idea for museums to maybe put some of their collections online. Like you said, some people with mobility issues or for whatever reason they can't. Uh, visit a museum they still have availability to view art and to experience it. I guess you know since this um, season is about giving advice to the museum one thing I've noticed with online collections is um, I want more detail like a lot of times there's a large image and then there's a smaller image and then there's a, a brief description and I I know that there's you know they have way more information on the work and I think the online description should have more than a, a wall label would like any kind of research that's been done on it it'd be great if there are like links to that because um you know I worked at a front desk and I spent a lot of time like whenever there was a gap between activities looking up objects in the collection and I always was like but what you know what, what kind of dyes were used in this where do they find it like I had so many questions that I feel like the digital uh platform allows to be answered yeah yeah you know, yeah, we can do Listen more to research. This museum. <laughs> yeah. So I think as much you can have like a basic face page for each piece, but I think if there are le links that add to any kind of like articles that have been written about the piece or 
any kind of historical context um, beyond like it. Yeah, I think that's really great. Even close ups, you know, like to be to sort of see texture better. Yeah. And sometimes there there are some pieces that are, you know, kept behind a glass and you really can't see the texture. Like I look at a lot of textile work and I would love to see more detailed images that let me feel like I can, I'm closer to it. But, you know, this platform is like a different way to present the work entirely, not just like, we have this, come see it. It's, you know, an, a way to learn more about it. And now we'll hear from staff at the National Museum. My name is Rolf, and I am Director of Collection Management for the National Museum in Oslo. And right now I'm in my basement uh, for the lockdown. Uh, maybe you have to turn on your camera. Turn camera off, turn camera on. Unfortunately, uh, you won't see me, and Adley has seen me already, and I tried to look extra <laughs> professional. She was like, have you cut your hair? I'm even wearing perfume, you know? Too bad. Yeah. But... Uh, just trust me, I look great. <laughs> I, I do. Um, but maybe we can, um, can before we start with uh, us uh, trying to give advice and get some help from you as well, um, maybe you can say a little bit more what your position actually means so we can uh, understand what it means when you say what you do. Uh, yeah, this uh, it's uh, I'm head of the department that takes care of uh, the art when it's not exposed in the exhibition rooms. It's um, five different sections. It's a section for the conservators, the photographers, the registrars, uh, the art handlers and the storage managers. And there's also a satellite called uh, digital collection management. We're approximately 80 people and some temporary now that we're doing the big move and, and the big conservation project prior to that. Um, so are you uh, good at giving advice? Are you? Uh... No, we're making it up as we go along. <laughs> we try to okay. ask as many uh, good and stupid questions along the way. I mean, it's it's not very often that you move a whole collection, so you need to think, have a different mindset than when you are moving to an exhibition, because then you can have individual focus on every individual piece of art now you need to try to think more modular as as few uh, movements as possible and as little human interaction as possible so uh, we're seeking advice from everywhere basically uh, like the national museum in stockholm who, who did the re-hanging in their new uh, furnished uh, museum and also the Rijksmuseum, who's uh, closed for more than 10 years uh, and there's been a couple of others who have who've done huge collection movements. So there's always good advice and and uh, and people are more than willing to to share that. Now we also want you to help us give some advice to our listeners. Yeah. Because some of the questions are personal questions. Some of them are. Uh, more like in relationship to an institution maybe they're working with or thinking of. Well, we just want to get started. Yeah. Are you, oh, yeah. Do you feel... Go ahead. Yeah? Yeah? Uh, I can read the first question. Oh. Yeah. So the first question we have is someone asked, I was asked to sell my work at a not very happening gallery slash store in a little town in Norway. I didn't know them before and I think it's cute that they found me. Or do I? I also want little places like this to exist in the world. I just don't want to have my work associated with it. How do I tell them no thanks without hurting anyone's feelings? 
Oh, that, that, <laughs> that's a tricky one. I, th I think um, in the long run, it's always uh, good to listen to your gut feeling. If, if there's something that's not right, then uh, you, you, you probably should already have made your decision. I mean, exposure is not everything. So if you feel that this is not the proper place for you or your works of art to be exhibited, um, I think uh, you should say no and try. I mean, art is always, it's difficult to not let art be become personal because there's a lot of feelings involved when, when you work with that uh, media. But... Um, I think, I mean, you're in a position where you, you don't have to go into detail why you don't want to do it. As long as you <laughs> try to be polite and not um, point out all their flaws, if that's why you're concerned. It's also what kind of family you want to be associated with when you exhibit your art. I mean, if, 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 is this the right environment for you? Maybe not. I mean, uh, it's it's a very difficult question to answer. It, it but uh, if you want to stay true to your feelings about your work, uh, and this is giving you mixed feelings, I think you should say no. And how to do that without stepping on any toes? It's I don't think I have the recipe for that. But uh, start um, with a general answer, uh, and if if. The person who gets the no wants to want you to uh, go into detail about that. Uh, I don't really know how to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just thinking while you were talking that the answer is kind of in the question. Um, I think in general saying no thanks is probably enough. But at the yeah, yeah. but at the same time, maybe there are more um, emerging artists that would love the opportunity, and you could suggest someone because that way you're not just saying no you're saying no thank you but, that's a, that's yeah. yeah that's a very good idea actually because then you're you're helping the community of artists as well as trying to fix a problem for the gallery or the or the space that wants your art mm -hmm. i just wanted to add that um um that if this person um really wants to contribute to smaller places or a little town in Norway, mm -hmm. you could you sh you sh should do something in a smaller place yes. in Norway, you know. So like try to figure out like how can I create a context in a small place where I would show my work, because hmm. because uh, I don't think it's like either you go for that little place where where you feel wrong about showing your work, but find a way to show your work. Yeah. So that's so that you can contribute with uh, with work in these uh, places that you love, mm. but at the same time not compromise. Yeah, that's a, that's a good advice. I mean, and also to reach out to the people that uh, you want to be associated with on your same level, and maybe you can do something together someplace. And actually, then I would like to say, like, if because um, I think. Sometimes even like, yeah, it's important to listen to the gut feeling, but I think it's really important to question the gut feeling as well. You know, like not automatically sort of um, go against it, but think like, what, what is this? What, where is it coming from? Could I possibly use or work with this space, but somehow still manage to create a context where I'm confident and feel, feel my work is uh, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. Like whether, 
yeah, whether you like do something with some colleagues or or sort of contextualize mm. it in a way that makes it that makes your work could maybe it's like could benefit your work somehow, you know, like uh, or sort of work with and against the the gut feeling and try to figure out like maybe this is actually something that could accentuate something in my work. Yeah, and it's a golden opportunity to do something you probably wouldn't have dared to do somewhere else. Uh, you can question uh, how you work and uh, what kind of format you work in because some some artists I know has they have done things like that in places they were not really sure about to, uh, people expect them to produce they produce something else because yeah. they use this as an opportunity to expand um i can maybe just like share a little thing that happened a few years ago i was uh, showing something in a small uh, town in norway and I was completely, what's it called in English? Slakta in local press. I was completely... Trashed. Roasted. Yeah. Roasted, yeah, in local press. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, how do I deal with this? <laughs> and uh, and there was like some ongoing conversations in the local press. And, and somehow, I don't know, to me, because it's so local, it was also, also this sort of um training ground like it, it, it and because it's, it's it's not national like it, it doesn't get that much exposure but it becomes something important in in a specific place and it, within one specific context and it was also sort of a you know like exercise or training or like a soft roast yeah. for me because I could sort of uh, also try to figure out how do I deal with uh, criticism how do I listen to it, what kind of criticism means what um, so I think there can be uh, benefits that are uh, worth considering. Uh, now I'm talking about like a roast as a <laughs> benefit, but you know, you grow. And yeah, it's it's a sharp yeah. shock there and then, but I mean, it 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 really it provokes some kind of thought. Uh, so so it can be a, a good experience if you're if you're up for it. The the next question. I know that museums, to a certain point, communicate colonial awareness. But how do we, as a museum, relate to the fact that a museum is a manifestation of colonialist power structures, while at the same time try to have an agency of decolonization? I guess I'm asking this because I work in one of these institutions, and I'm trying to figure out how we can be decolonizing. Well, that's um, that's a tough question to answer, but there is uh, a growing colonial awareness and a lot of museums have built their foundation around the fact that they uh, had colonies and were basically bringing all the bacon home and to a certain extent it's the question of how how much can we return are we now just uh, keepers of the historic artifacts for the rest of the history for the rest of the world's history or do we um, how should we actually give back the stuff that we unrightfully took from them in the first place? And it's also the a lot of the the natural history museums. This is the backbone of the whole collection. So if if we were to return everything, the, it would make the collection look totally different, and it would also, in a sense, rewrite history. So it's it's a very it's a tricky question because some some of them some of the rightful owners are also arguing that the the objects 
are being kept in an environment that will prolong their life. A lot of the stuff, if it was kept um, at the place where it came from, would not be in the same state. But does that really is is that important? Uh, I would because um, I I understand that a lot of communities have been uh, robbed for for their history and their historic artifacts and uh, it certainly at a time where this was belonging to a white elite uh, with very few people and the the, um, the audience was predominantly white and rich and they were trophies so I, I mean I think it's it's a very important question to ask and I hope that we can find a way to make this more of a universal uh, property. I'm not sure if, if we'll, we'll be able to return it to their rightful owners, but it would it would be something that we should strive for is that we should return it to the world as an international uh, place for showing art. I'm not sure if this makes any sense. It's just <laughs> that it's it's a huge paradox and I, I I I think uh, it's going to be dif- difficult to to find a solution. Because like you said the museum would be telling a different story without those artifacts. So in some way if they were returned then when you enter a museum maybe it's only now telling the story of European art which has a lot of influences from other cultures but those influences wouldn't be in the same space. No, it 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 would actually be sort of rewriting history. Because we we cannot undo what we have done, but we can return the artifact. That would be mm. quite easy. But uh, at the end of the day, we we did we stole those things. But then um, I'm d- I'm just trying to understand here uh, what you're saying. So, but still, uh, communication doesn't uh, depend on having physical objects. No, 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 no. That's true. And a lot, a lot of objects weren't and, meant to last. So that's interesting that like the values of yeah. one society are placed on another when they were meant to exist within a specific context or for a specific purpose. But then now they're just something that's kind of yeah. sealed off and untouchable and unexperienceable. That's the paradox of conservation. How it decomposes well. I mean, change the beauty of change in in natural fabrics and objects. It's it's a lot of interesting scopes around that Mm. i think this could lead into another question that um is somewhat related to preservation anna do you want to read it it's the Um, number 22 yeah this is such a beautiful transition i was wondering if institutions have any idea of how to deal with art if you cannot see it physically and experience it in a space i personally believe that this is a big part of the magic of art it seems like the crisis, but also reducing our footprint, is asking us also to think about it differently. Do you have any thoughts or advice on this? I don't think I understand. I, that's basically if you can't touch. Well, you can't touch it anyways. <laughs> but well, sometimes you can. But you can't be uh, physically in the room. Like you can't be present. I think that's what it means. Mm. Or, or it's just like un, un, not visible. I mean, not all over social media now you can see artists and galleries and even art fairs dealing with this and try to exhibit stuff. 
through social media and also through higher resolution channels. And as as long as you have a good uh, for middling, what's that? Communication. <laughs> yeah, good communication for, around yeah. uh, what you're trying to exhibit. I think that could be a very good way of um, inviting people into that space. The only thing missing is the that um, intuitive feeling you get without any kind of uh, um, what do you call, a program when it comes to communication. Just that you, there's something there that grabs you, but but you don't really know why. I mean, hopefully you can mm. you can um, create that digital, but the the being in the same room as the analog object uh, even if it's a two dimensional or three dimensional it's it's a huge experience that i'm not sure if you can translate that 100% to digital but i i think it's a, it's a good way of trying to um work like the the distance from the object we we have to find ways to uh, shorten that through digital mm. media mm-hmm. and I also think that the, 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 the time that we are going through now is that the the boundaries be- between the old the analog and the digital are going to be washed away and it's going to interact more seamlessly when we are getting better at this hopefully mm. I find it kind of interesting now uh, thinking about like this very uh, corona time um with all the with all art flourishing on social media but the fact that artists uh, have been or within our community as artists we do so much application work so much documentation and for so long our work has still only been seen on online yeah so somehow it's almost like we're prepared for prepared for this or we have sort of worked within those that segment or in that space for a while and personally I've been really sort of critical or uh, I've, I've just haven't liked it because I'm like oh I my work doesn't look good no, no. <laughs> uh, on the internet but at the same time I'm um, it, it's also kind of interesting how we could sort of work with and or again against it yeah to to know that okay we have to deal with this if i make a portfolio could my portfolio be my work or like how can i or my website like uh how can that mediation be more of a, a space like more of a, a exhibition platform mm. from the start i think that's a beautiful thought and also uh, uh, i understand the skepticism when it comes to the the distortion of all the images and how it looks and also the quality with online uh, publications. But I think for, for the general public, this this is okay. It's like when MP3 came along, it was it, the, the quality and the resolution of, of the sound is so, uh, it's extremely poor mm-hmm. compared to the higher resolution analog source but this is this is how we listen to music today so i th- i think this you can you can get as much thrill from that experience uh in the art world as you would uh because you would know how it would look yeah analog and 
so so you you mm. don't really have that com you you can't compare that other than the artist but the artist needs to be the one that facilitates that that experience and mm. and make it maybe you need to enhance it some way uh, just to make it feel right but i'm not sure if that's a wrong thing to do i don't know art basel today they make these cubes because they know that they they won't be able to to go along with the public fair so so everyone in this community is trying to find new ways to show their art this had me thinking about um uh recently i was at a the norton museum in florida and they had for a limited time for the chinese new year they had this silk painting that had been restored and it was very because it's a textile piece it was very dimly lit and you could barely see what was going on but they had a like a touch screen next to it and you there were details of parts in it's a very big painting so you can't even see the top and you could examine different parts and there's explanations mm. of like um you know what was in the image and then you started to see things that you couldn't see before like i didn't see the figures that were there because they were so faded but then once i saw them mm. on the tablet then i looked and i was like oh yeah there is a person there um so it was like a, a way to experience something mm -hmm. that's too fragile for you to experience in any other way and it's behind glass that's yeah and so i thought that was a really interesting way to deal like to merge technology and something that you know is like a a very old and significant piece that is very hard for people to see in general and to display because of its mm. sensitivities. Yeah, and that's beautiful. I mean, because that uh, the meeting when the new meets the old, then you get an enhanced uh, experience just because of that. Because you can actually zoom in and you can see stuff that you weren't able to see. And uh, also with the, the quality on on like photography today, you can really get a deep image of what's going on on the surface and uh, and also. Uh, beneath the surface. This is just kind of hopeful. I like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like this conversation. <laughs> Can we move on to one more yeah. question? Sure. Yeah? Um, okay, I am picking this. How do I know that what I'm spending my time and energy on is the right thing to do? Especially when there's so much in the world to fight for and against. Oh, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, well, I mean, it it comes back to that for me at least uh, the gut feeling it it needs to something needs to tingle uh, and also it needs to have some kind of perspective because a lot of the stuff you work on as an artist it doesn't really it it could take a while before it makes any sense to you because you don't really it's it's not always that clear what you're trying to produce or what you're trying to express this is just on a personal level of course this you get all this kind of business layers on top of that if you if, if you want to build a name for yourself there's a lot of stuff that comes into the equation as well i think it's really it's it's extremely hard to to know if you're doing the right thing hopefully you have a few people around you that you could play ball with and and have good discussions with and even probably hopefully someone uh, who's had a um, some mileage when it comes to experience both uh, like professionally and uh, philosophically uh, I don't know if that answered the question it's it's a really hard question for me to answer yeah I guess 
Mike, lately I've had an I had an experience where I was able to because um, I was doing an artist residency in the area where I'm from in Florida, and I hadn't been back there in any professional way as an adult, and I had all these family members and and family friends come and visit me, and I was talking to them about my work, and as I was talking, I realized like this is a totally different audience than I'm normally talking to. Um, a lot of them aren't museum goers or art lovers, and they just were interested because of me. And then I was able to like introduce them to ideas that they were unfamiliar with or that they hadn't thought of. And I, and I started to realize that the way that I talked about my work didn't change. And so I was really happy in that moment to realize that I can, the way I talk about my work isn't wasn't turned into some kind of art jargon. So in that moment, I was like, okay, because I've been having a lot of doubts about some of the things I've been doing. And um, in that moment, I was like, I actually feel like I'm doing the right thing with my work if I'm able to have the same kind mm. of language with totally different groups and it still is communicating what I'm, you know, what I'm researching. I don't know if that... That's beautiful. That's like a yeah. moment of clarity. Yeah. I think like for for my work, it's like it's usually like the stuff that's not work that I have to make more priority pri- priorities on. Because I guess like with my work, I'm just uh, more obsessed, and and then with other stuff, often which is well, because like, I sometimes have this like with uh, my like when I do political work or like that type of stuff. I'm just like trying to figure out like what keeps me angriest the longest, you know, basically anger as an equivalent of like energy. Like if I'm going to work with this, I can't uh, finish my work tomorrow. If I'm going to work with this, I have to have this fuel that will last me mm-hmm. till I die. <laughs> so then I go for the stuff that will keep me up till <laughs> I die. <laughs> okay, someone else can do the other part because I have to have yeah a certain amount of energy and also the type of energy that doesn't well, of course, something that makes me angry, but also something that doesn't, you know, like destroy me. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, somewhere in and between. And that's, that's an interesting point to come to when you realize that y- though you might be angry and passionate about something, you have to let it go for your own mental health. Because I've had that happen where I got deep in a project where I was basically like tracking um, white supremacists online. And I, in the end, I reported some of oh, them fuck. to the FBI, but, you know, it was like taking a toll on me just like crying you know just realizing of course I know racism is out there but it was too much and then another project researching unidentified people whose bodies have been found in the desert in the U.S. or in random places and never been claimed and like I'm not at this point in my life cut out for that kind of um you know even though I care about these issues no. I'm not cut out to like go deep into it and other people are I think it's so important that you, yeah, to to see what you can can and cannot do. I've had that with some friends that sometimes I'm really be like, hey, you do that, I do that, and we like swap or, we're, because uh, then you, yeah, to to sort of sw- yeah swap the effort or the work, you know, like this is not as painful to me to do. I'll do this, and yeah, you can do that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, to find sort of like uh kind of allies or people that you can. Uh, exchange like because uh, some some type of work is just too painful and then we can swap it around like hey I'll I'll do this mm-hmm. part yeah I think that's that's very interesting to have some kind of strategy so that you won't be totally exhausted so you can have sort of a soft landing by just swapping with someone else because then it won't be that personal and that uh, exhuming 
And I think a lot of what uh, I see nowadays is that people who aren't in a position to maybe take action on a certain issue just spend a lot of time sharing about it on social media. And in that way, you're raising awareness. I mean, there's lots of things that I've learned and shared and people are like, I had no idea this was happening. Um, and then someone yeah. who is in a position to do something about it will be, you know, they'll be aware that it's there. Yeah. I, mm. I think that's, that's a very good thing because the more awareness you raise around this, it's going to be harder and harder to be a dick, basically. So I was uh, wanting to move on and ask if you have something that you need our advice on. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would love to hear um, your thoughts on how, how we can open up and be uh, more diverse and make the museum uh, a place for us as many layers of society as possible. Um, is the museum free? Is entry free? Uh, I'm not sure if we have decided that yet because we, we don't really know when we are going to open. Yeah. All the different museums, has, they have been relocated in this new big national museum. So um, we are going to show all of the collections there. So I'm not sure if we will be able to keep everything free or parts of it free or I would hope for the museum to so that the entrance would be free yeah I think that's one of the biggest obstacles especially if someone yeah. isn't familiar with art to, to yeah. ask them to you know a lot of museums cost the price of going to two yeah. movies or something you know two movie tickets so yeah, if yeah. you're going to choose something some art form it's going to be something you're more familiar with if it's so expensive and it makes it feel elitist too that's, I mean, I would love that place to be somewhere but where people would, it would be a place for them to naturally gravitate through to. It's so important to, so when you enter a space, it's like, it feels, uh, it feels, it feels obvious that yeah, I yeah. can exist here, I can be here, I can come here and I can mm -hmm. hang out here yeah. and, uh, and not be afraid to or feel unwelcome yeah i Maybe. think it's up to us how how do we want to invite the public into this space we have to make it as easy accessible as possible to open up for cultural diversity and also the people's understanding of what is an art museum what can we expect and and also try and mix with other kinds of cultural happenings as well mm -hmm. and I, I think that the museum has to it can't be like a physical place that people have to go to in order to experience it I think the museum uh, needs yeah, to, need be to reach out, out. Yeah, to yeah. be out in the world and you know yeah, yeah. That, in yeah, schools definitely in very important so we need to go out and campaign <laughs> shake hands and kiss babies <laughs> Except uh, not for a long time. <laughs> uh, not right now. No, no, no. On the other side of Corona, we will. It's interesting how libraries have developed and changed and become more like of a place to like a like a non-commercial space to to learn and to meet and to um, yeah to be all these things at the same you time. Have amazing Stavanger um, Library that you took me to. It's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's. But there are many great libraries here, yeah. and I think like if that could be sort of libraries would be more like the role model, you know, like to to hang out. Yeah. Because I know, 
I just know, like, from growing up, my grandmother, she would have some art on the walls and, like, the sort of to grow up with artworks. They're also public works. Yeah. Like, to have works, uh, artworks in my, like, in me growing up has been so important. So if I could, you know, like, that the museum would be, like, an extension of my, you know, like, my living room or my, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. That would be so great. I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to take me and my sister to a place just outside Oslo called Henjonstad Art Center. And we we basically grew up there. And that that that's that made a huge impact on, on me and how I... Uh, digest and consume art and um, also the, the the thing you say about the, the libraries is the, 10 years ago they were doomed people were dooming them to extinction but but now they are the most popular thing to have in a shopping center because it's so popular it, it people are really using them again so that's that's a good place to to look when it comes to how to attract people definitely Comfortable seating. And now we'll hear from an artist friend. My name is Ayat, officially Ayat Gali Turiobek. I'm a visual artist and I'm also um, a part of Podium, um, which is an artist run gallery in Oslo. naturalness that comes from being in person is gone if you're you know you're like meeting someone on on skype yeah it is but one gets quite used to it quite fast i had uh, like three day eight hour meeting sessions this week and then others like two hour sessions related to work and it was in the beginning it was awkward but then i thought this could work on the long term. One doesn't need to meet in person or can stay at home and yeah. I don't know how did you uh, experience it? Uh, the only work meetings I've had so far are with Anna. So it's just, I don't know. I mean, that's normal because we talk to each other. Yeah, but it's know, also I... kind of weird with this um, like time zone thing. Like one is either about to go to sleep or the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Like we were talking, it was 1 a.m. for me and 8 a.m. Was it 8 a.m. for you or 9? 9 a.m. Yeah, we had one Yeah, this morning, which was her night, talking like with this uh, guy at the National Museum. and You're in bed now. Are you out of Me? Bed? Yeah. I'm always in bed. <laughs> <laughs> There's kids running around, my niece and nephew. So... This is the safest place to record. And where are you based, Adone? I wasn't based anywhere, um, but I was having, you know, my all my mail and things coming to Portland, and I just happened to be here for two weeks for an exhibition when all this happened. And my sister lives here, so I was staying with her, and now I'm just staying with her until until I can leave. Yeah. But I don't have anywhere to go after, so I don't know. Uh. It's a little weird. What's gonna happen after this? Will it be used as a, like a momentum for changing things, or will it make it business as usual, where those who are in a power position will be even stronger, and the poor will get poorer? That's like a, I think, an interesting 
situation, I think. Yeah, definitely. Especially thinking about, like, even when it comes to business, all the big, big businesses will be fine. And then all the small ones, which are the ones that have character, will, a lot of them will be gone. Yeah. Yeah. I've been talking to a friend from Kazakhstan who is um, working in finance and now he's uh, kind of preparing for the crisis and activated his trading on Wall Street from Kazakhstan. So he's making massive amount of money and according to him it's um, very terrible. And also it's a kind of he's of kind of a f- interesting person because he's a total like Marxist, but at the same time he's a Wall Street trader because (laughs) (laughs) yeah and um, he was saying that uh, the things that are happening now it's crazy especially in the US where they gave like close to three trillion dollars and a trillion is a million of millions so when Mm -hmm. you transform that money to Norwegian kroners that would be even more insane so they gave it to like these big corporations like Goldman Sachs and etc so that would they would buy even more stocks because the 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 thing that they're afraid of is that the stock prices will go down and Mm -hmm. it creates a situation where the uh, financial market is completely detached from the actual things that are happening. I mean, just imagining like the market is growing while the US or like New York is on lockdown and so is Europe and so is Asia. It's just a phenomenally like terrible thing to think about. Yeah. yeah. And like talking about artists that would now it's in Norway. I think there is a lot of good measures that have been taking generally good measures that are being installed in regards to supporting art artists and freelancers but it is the aftermath which would be uh, yeah because they will have to cut funding on many things and as usual it's going to be the culture which is the first to uh, be uh, excluded so i think harder times yeah. will come definitely i noticed the first people, including myself, who had anything canceled were artists, like of my friends, people who lost their jobs, people who had events canceled, income, you know, reduced or eliminated. And then it started to be people in other fields, which was like next design. And we'll see what the rest will be. Yeah, so we're we're doing like a little distraction season. Do you ever give advice? I am. If I give advice, I do but i don't like to but i think i'm very good at pep talking but i have to be in a good mood i think i have to like drink a couple of beers uh, to get into the pep talk mood but uh, now i decided that i'm not gonna drink at home okay so we need your advice uh someone submitted a question that says if we strip down what the essentials one needs to do as an artist what would that be except for creating new work um I think there is a very romantic way of answering this question that artists literally doesn't need anything. Um, but uh, at the same time, we, the society, and so is the uh, art world, um, have come to a level of complexity where it is um, hard to imagine. Um, having a bare essentials, let's say like a shelter, 
and the piece of paper and the pen uh, that this situation would be uh, necessary in order for artists to be uh, productive and participating in the artistic and cultural life. I think the most essential thing is, is the education, which I think most of all kind of teaches the language of the art world uh, with its references and with its modes and uh, and kind of allows access to um, a certain subculture which, which which i think art world is a subculture in a certain sense art education allows uh, this access and also allows uh, gives like uh, tools for um, pr producing works that are relevant for um, for the intellectual and cultural thought of the day but also by art education i don't mean necessarily a degree from um, an art school but more of a a certain set of uh, theory philosophy art history and there are like some examples where artists uh, got that luggage of education by themselves i think yeah. so i would say it's art it's education i would say so this is your answer and the romantic answer would be the the romantic answer, answer would be oh everything an artist needs is uh let's say <laughs> A glass of good wine and a piece of paper and a pen, you know, there is nothing more that artists needs. But I would like to believe that, but I don't think it holds true today due to the complexity of the yeah. of the yeah. world we live in. When I was, um, like after I graduated with my bachelor's degree and then was trying to figure out what to do with my life, uh, um, some family members were like, you need to go to grad school. Like, you know, all the young artists I see have gone to graduate school and you need to go. And I really pushed against that because I really didn't want that to be true. And I, I mean, I have seen artists who haven't gone to any kind of art school. But, you know, like you said, it's it's not common. It's not as common. You said, like, some people have managed to push through. But, like, even though I ended up going to graduate school and I saw how that made a difference, you know, in terms of the way that I have, like, that I speak and the language that I have and the social skills and knowing how just basically knowing more about how the art world works I kind of like hated that that's what it took for anyone to take me seriously I'm kind of surprised with thinking like the first thing you need is art education but realistically I know that that's true or that it's crucial for education as in like uh, as in the actual degree even yeah. That, that, yeah. that holds true for so much of it because my first answer is like well apart from shelter like what kind of like qualities does one need but that is definitely more towards the wine side you know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or the romantic idea like of course as long as Felix Gonzalez Torres is like my uh, in heaven mentor when it comes to like how I try to relate to the world or understand things around me and I think even like what I've been feeding myself are more ideas you know like of aware awareness and education but not education as in a degree but but yeah as a person who asked it's it's really holds true i don't know for better or worse but i think um, it's it's also i mean, I mean it's um, it is kind of exclusive as well i mean maybe not so much in in countries like scandinavia where um, education is uh, 
free uh, for everyone, at least in Norway. And I'm one of the examples who largely benefited from this. I came from Kazakhstan to study in the Art Academy here for the reasons that it was free. But in many other countries, uh, um, art education is um, exclusive in, in many senses, like in US, I guess, where you have to pay immense amount of uh, tuition fees and go into the student um, um, loan and the debt and uh, yeah. yeah. I love getting advice from other people because the, the answers are so unexpected sometimes. Like I think, you know, how I read the question is like, what do you need to do as an artist? And so to me, I would have said, you, the thing I've realized you need the most is, um, uh, what do you call it? Like self-motivation. Because it's not a job where you have a boss that tells you what to do. Like you tell yourself what to do and you have to keep, yeah, discipline. You have to keep applying to things or writing or, you know, if it's necessary, promoting, making a website. All these things are like things you have to initiate yourself. Beyond, I mean, if you just make art and you don't make any effort to show it or share it or explain it or anything, then it's just kind of, it becomes just a hobby, which is fine. But, you know, if, if you want to be an artist, you have to have other too. Yeah, but that your answer is surprising to me uh, with the discipline because I could not imagine a situation for myself where I would uh, do art as a hobby. I mean, outside of like, I can't imagine, unfortunately, um, an artistic pra a studio practice which would be outside of an exhibition. You know, so I always have to work towards an exhibition in a way. I have a goal. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It could feel pointless, I think. I mean, working towards an exhibition is is falls in that category of discipline because that's that's your yeah. criteria yeah. that keeps you motivated. Yeah. For someone else, it's, it's just you know, some people it's like a compulsion. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that it can look so many different ways because Adley and I we've we've talked about it quite a bit, and like I'm so like I have to have like really strict routines, otherwise like I go mental. Uh, literally, yeah, I, I get I get sick, and and you can like stay up late or follow your like your route i don't know and at this in one way i'm like i wish i had it's like i'm i have these routines not to have to work so hard with my self-discipline you know like I, I just like make it into a habit yeah mm -hmm. the moment i make i have to make like decisions to be to be strong <laughs> that i <laughs> that i'll fail can you just say like what's uh, how does your um self-discipline or motivation work for you I think I'm very badly disciplined person, but um, I, I was like same as you, as you said, I could like stay up all night and yeah, and do some things that are not good for everyday mental health, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm not really affected by it or I don't really care or I don't get easily <laughs> depressed, I think, luckily, uh, out of doing okay. these things. But um, I think it's my partner who makes me disciplined on everyday basis since this quarantine situation was installed i've been waking up quite early every day like around eight so and starting to work going to to bed early like waking up early having a normal schedule nine to four or longer and then eating at the right time and uh, so yeah <laughs> thanks to my partner oh, what a blessing <laughs> yeah. um i'm gonna move on Okay, this is a question about a work situation. So, the question is how to deal with a narcissistic psychopath as a co-worker. What, what kind of advice do we give to this person that most likely has to meet this person every day? 
Um, I think it's a pretty terrible situation to be in. Uh, I haven't been in this situation, um, but I know other people who have. Um, and I think it depends a lot. There are many parameters, I think. There is no easy answer. There are many parameters, I think, that need to be taken in account. First of all, what is the work culture in your in, in the place where you work? Can you talk with uh, someone who is above your boss or to HR department um, who could solve this question? Or And also another thing to think about is how important is this job or do, do you see any other possibilities uh, of, of finding a, a, a work somewhere else where you wouldn't meet such a person? I, at the same time, I mean, it's a... It's quite a bad question to ask for me because I haven't really, I've never signed a work contract in my life. <laughs> I think it's actually probably pretty similar between us. If I have to work with someone that's a pain in the ass, it's still like, it's only like for these two or three months, you know, like if it's yeah. some sort of collaboration or yeah. someone in an institution or whatever, it's still like all limited. Like, I'm just going to smile for the next two months. And then yeah. I'm yeah. Yeah. Never see again. Yeah. So that's another like a romantic uh, benefit of being an artist where you're not bound to one person over years. Uh, Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Otherwise, there is like the, I, like very long time ago, I read a book uh, which was quite funny. The title was something like um, The Ethics of a Corporate Machiavelli Advice uh, Given by a Former mafia mob or something like this <laughs> <laughs> it was quite uh, interesting uh, read i think and uh, i mean it's, it was like all it, it obviously comes from a a, a different uh, universe different to our universe of artists where everything is left wing and all things good uh, uh, but there i found it's like some tools were quite interesting and I think found them efficient uh, in terms of how can we communicate to people like this. And then it's like another another book. I was in a recently. I was in a in a, in a situation of of um, where I had to uh, how do you say haggle over a price. I was asked to give a quote on one of the services I provide, and then I thought. I have no idea of negotiation, so how do I negotiate? And I've been asking people around, and obviously artists don't have much of knowledge about this. So I googled the book and I found this book about negotiating, <laughs> which was written by a former FBI agent who was negotiating um, hostage rescues. <laughs> and. I mean, all the it like the rhetorics and the ideology of these things sounded quite horrible, and many of these things were very problematic ethically. But I think when you're in a situation where you are the victim of uh, of abuse, uh, of a psychopathic abuse, why not to use the tools of your enemy against your enemy? I, I think ethically it makes sense. So I don't think it's yeah. like the, there is this like idea of like, you no, you should negate, negate everything capitalist. You should negate everything uh, psychopathic. Yes, you should negate your things to people who are good, who you deem good. But do you need to negate those things who cause trouble to you on everyday life, who abuse yeah. you? Maybe yeah. not. You know. I'm all about avoiding people. 
to a certain extent, like if or avoiding conflict. If I know I have to deal with someone on a long term, and I like I can't see sort of how this, especially if someone has like a personality disorder, and you know, like you sort of figure out like this is not going to lead anywhere. It won't lead anywhere. Complaining, so either. I would just figure out like how to minimize contact and actually also like you said actually see like do, do I need to stay in this workplace because it can be so harmful but at the same time what I'm realizing the more I talk to people that have colleagues <laughs> close by is that there is very often someone in a workplace that will be uh, an asshole to, an asshole yeah. yeah 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 I mean I think I've I've had a lot of encounters with narcissists and Psychopaths, and um, I think that a lot of how I deal with it is I reach a limit, and then I don't want to say I lash out, but like I won't put I won't put up with a certain degree of treatment. Um, Anna, you witnessed this, <laughs> but um, it's also about knowing the like learning the tricks of what the person is doing. You know, like the manipulative language they use or the things that they say to try to try to um, provoke you. Like I have a fam- family member, so I know I, I know this very well. But yeah, a lot of times the person is trying to control you too, I've noticed. Um, and so like finding ways, like you said, to kind of use their techniques against them. Um, so like if someone's threatening me, like I put it, I'm like, oh, are you saying, this is what you're saying? Is this really what you're saying? Because a lot of times it's not very direct. You know, there's like this kind of language that's trying to twist your arm to do something or so, like, but to just, like, you know, get some documentation of what this person is doing. Like, is this what you're saying to me? Is this what you mean by this? And I, I think people like that are only afraid of how they're perceived. So if something's going to make them look bad, like, for instance, Donald Trump, you know, he cares about how he looks. So if you can, like, frame something in a way that is going to make him look bad if he doesn't do it. I mean, he still doesn't care, but... You know, like that's one of the one of the few techniques to deal with people like that. Like they only care about how they look to the world. So, yeah. um, if but they I, think that there's a threat to that, I also guess if um, depends on the sort of uh, the degree of um, like how 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 bad or if something is uh, if something if you know like something is like harassment or is like definitely unacceptable behavior. So I just like know from this, but like learning about like sexual harassment, that you should definitely document everything, record everything, save everything, so that if you if you know there are definitely things that are like above a certain level, that you can actually yeah. do report it. So if you have like a stack of things, it makes it a lot easier to go to your boss and be like, check out this. Yeah. 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 And to have allies too, because I mean you're not the only person dealing with this person, like find out who else is suffering from the way this person is behaving. Yeah. It can be hard to, like, figure that out, but... <clears throat> Should we move on? Yeah. Okay, we, ha- we have, like, one more question. I'm just trying to pick which one. Maybe you'd be good at this last question on the list. Um, what kind of communication would you expect museums and curators to have with artists beyond exhibitions and collection acquisitions? So basically, like, what relationship should museums and curators have with artists beyond showing their work and collecting their work. Oh, what communication I would expect with the artist as a curator is that... Uh, yeah. Um, Beyond like, showing their work. Like, I do curation at an artist-run space called Podium uh, in Oslo. And um, 
there we try to have a bit more of a, of a, um, situ a typical like artist curated situation pro professionality we strive actually for a friendship and uh, which is which manifests itself in different forms be it through talking about art having studio visits or to meeting up for a beer in a bar um, and um, socializing as well but when it comes to the museum of course um, it's a completely different situation i think but i would um, but, but if you would switch around the if you would like switch around roles and so say you're gonna have a solo show at the national museum how would ideally the communication be with the curator you as an artist ah like this way <laughs> yeah yeah in an um, ideal world uh, I would like, I think what would be, I think the most interesting things in working with curators for me is other studio visits. If let's say I'm commissioned to produce a work for a museum, I would like uh, a conversation partner, uh, a curator of the museum to be a conversation partner during the production, um, which can be a, like a kind of a, form of a tutorial like you know when in the art academy you have this format of tutorial where you can talk with your professor in a um, in a situation of trust and um, i would really appreciate more of those situations where i would talk with the curator during her or his studio visit and discuss it and um, yeah um, otherwise what i kind of missing a lot in Oslo, I think, is um, is a um, discursive program of the museums. Obviously, a lot of the museums are now cl like closed because of the of the reconstruction with the National Museum and the Mint Museum and the others. But what I've been missing is uh, a series of, let's say, conferences, talks, which would raise a level of criticality and make me aware of things that I don't usually come across that I would think would be very interesting for me. What would you say, Anna? I mean, I mean it's so weird. Maybe it's because like we're artists and we graduate and we're so old in a way that I still, in so many ways, feel like I've been out of school for five years, and like I have ex like I have different experiences and some pretty early after school when I work with curators. I would feel uh, or for a certain show, I would feel kind of. Maybe it was like I hadn't sort of figured out the the power dynamic, or I would be insecure, and this and would it would sort of make me feel less free in a way in the process. But as like I I sort of understand sort of the different roles, and of course they can be different at each time. Um, I yeah, I'm really not sure, but I think I would like uh, a curator like relationship to be like a quite long relationship. You know, so it's like something that conversations or research like de that develops over time, um, unless it's like a, a please we want to show this work in a, in this show. But uh, if it's like for a solo or something that's like a new commission, I think like long term conversation is. Uh, yeah, long term and, commitments. And it has to be the yeah. right person, as you said, right? Um, and I think yeah. here a lot matters from that you kind of have a similar ideology 
let's say you wouldn't have you wouldn't want Trump as a long-term conversation <laughs> partner and the curator of your show you know um, so if he's your friend I mean he could be great he could be like one of those great pep talkers it's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever seen anything like this before incredible huge <laughs> but he would force you in a nice way maybe to make some very nice marble sculpture and with gold and <laughs> and then he wouldn't pay you yeah <laughs> I thought about the different experiences I've had with curators in the city, in a city that I lived in for a while. And some were so distanced from the art community, they really didn't care about the artists that were there um, making work where they lived. They looked to bigger cities for who they uh, exhibited. They looked to big names that would draw people in. I think from the way that things changed, because I was living in St. Louis, where new curators came into the city and they really cared about the local artists, they would come to our openings. They would come to talks, they would show up at poetry readings, and they really felt like part of the art community instead of this like unattainable you know, person that don't even try to talk to them because you're just going to embarrass yourself. So for me, the kind of communication I would expect is that they're part of an art community and that they kind of bridge a gap between uh, your everyday artist and you know the bigger art world. Like, for example, introducing local artists to visiting artists, if you have uh, like I worked at the Polish Arts Foundation in St. Louis and Glenn Ligon was having an exhibition and they organized a lunch where he met with local artists and activists. And I thought that was great because, um, you know, that shows that you value your community. There are people you're excited to introduce to this big artist. And, mm. and it's also an opportunity for that artist to, to get to know like emerging artists. I also somehow think like uh, when it comes to, I guess it also has to do with like what kind of work or art I'm interested in, but like, um, but that sort of organizing also sort of puts content and art in a like <laughs> that it matters, you know, like yeah. takes it out of takes it into a discourse, takes it into a community, um, so it just doesn't become like a an object for with a price tag. And also there there is this I've been surprised to see some of the like, studio visits with some curators, which felt for me like it was due to different things like for example because it was short or that curator had to meet a lot of people it felt like a, a kind of a shopping situation where i was a a, a sales put, put in the position of a salesperson you know but at mm -hmm. the same time why am i interested to sell let's say my art to the curator who i don't know myself if i would like to work with mm. and yeah. this kind of like uh, artist as a salesman is I think it should be perfectly the other way around, where the curator comes as a salesman and say, hey, I have this show in mind, yeah. do you want to talk about this? Or, or not at all, or have developed it from, from other grounds, you know? When you were telling this now, I just realized that, uh, so I know I have for a while, but also uh, we've been in like a mentorship program together. But when we met, when I met you in that context, I was actually giving me a lot of advice, <laughs> or like we were discussing things we can learn from each other. So I think like uh, yeah, advice is generally needed, or like just uh, exchange of experiences and like yeah. what's useful and what's un not useful. 
Yeah, but it's also very important because a lot of situations are kind of in the work as an artist are given to you and you as a young artist do not question them. Like for example, yeah. this, the curator studio visit is kind of the mood is set that you need to sell your work mm. to the artist, but mm -hmm. that's not necessarily a question. Uh, no, that yeah. a, 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 tr a true fact maybe it's like so so thinking about that when someone told me about this that was a very revealing thought for me and then I told it to you I think during that mentorship program yeah. that's great <laughs> Thanks for listening to season three of Ask Adelie and Anna, which was commissioned by the National Museum in Norway.